We started this series last week called The Comparison Trap. Aren't you glad that none of us have ever done anything silly trying to impress someone else, right? Last week we talked about, uh, at the beginning of this series, this idea that we all try to compare ourselves to people. It's a natural human tendency to look to our right and look to our left and to see how we measure up with everyone else. And that in life, what happens is we generally become, as we do that, more disheartened, more discouraged because we realize that other people have more. And so we end up in this, uh, we called last week the land of Ur, right? Y'all remember that, those of you that were here? This land where we are constantly comparing ourselves and we want more. And so, as we talked about last week, we want to be richer or prettier or happier or taller or more talented er, right? And that we spend our lives trying to um, get that, to become more. In fact, there are some people that aren't happy with just er, they're the type A personalities. And so they're not happy with er, they want to be what? Est, right? They want to be rich est, smart est, happy est, talented est. All right? You get kind of the picture there. And what we talked about last week and what we came to understand is that there's no win in our lives in doing that. Because there will always be someone with more er. There will always be somebody out there that has more than us in any particular category. Now, it's true, we all can look around and find people who have less than us. But we're never really satisfied with that. We want to see and be one that has more. And so the more we do that, the more we kind of spin our wheels trying to find this thing, we find out there's no win in doing it. Now, last week we spent some time in Ecclesiastes. We're going to spend just a moment there, but I don't want you to turn there. I want you to turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. And in Galatians, we're going to look at some things in just a minute, but I want to finish where we were last week in Ecclesiastes by just showing you one last kind of illustration of this that Solomon uses. An illustration, he says, in chapter um, 4 of Ecclesiastes, verse 7, uh, verse 6 was where we left off last week. You remember this, right? Better is one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. The idea there is it's better to have one handful open for God to put in or to take out whatever he would like than it is to spend your life trying to hold on with two hands to what you can't hold. The tension in our life comes from trying to hold on. And so he goes on to say this. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. Now, in their day and time, that the only people that could inherit anything were men. So women couldn't inherit anything. And so when it says they're all alone, it just means, it doesn't mean that he has nobody in his life necessarily. He just didn't have an heir. Okay? There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. No end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. As we go on, he asks a question that some of you have been asking and some of you haven't asked yet. He faced something some of you have never stopped to face and some of you have never stopped facing. And it's this idea of, for who am I toiling? Who am I trying to compete with? Why am I trying to do it? What am I trying to prove? To whom? And then he says, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? He says, I can't even stop and 
enjoy what I have. You know, one of the interesting things that I've found, um, you know, the Olympics ends today, closing ceremonies tonight. One of the interesting things I've found is that it's interesting the number of gold medalists that win their medal and, you know, they've spent their whole life, it seems like, going for this one moment. And they win it and then they go to the interview with, uh, with uh, Bob Costas or Matt Lauer or one of those guys, uh, Ryan Seacrest or whoever it is doing the interview. And they always ask them this question towards the end of the interview. So are you going to be back in Rio? Never mind the fact that your life has culminated in this gold medal. You've stood on the stand. You've had the national anthem played. Everything you have spent the last four years working towards has been accomplished. The real question is, and what really matters is, are you going to do it again? They don't even enjoy the moment. Then Solomon says this. This too is meaningless. And I love this from NIV. A miserable business. You see, the real issue or a real important question for us to ask when it comes to this idea of comparison is, who or what is my standard in life? Who or what is my mirror? What am I going to use as my mile markers, as my standards? Is it my neighbors and their freshly cut grass and brand new vehicle and seemingly perfect lifestyle? Is it my boss and the way he has succeeded and where he's gone and what he's doing? Is it the in-laws and seeing what they had that we never had growing up? Is it something else? Not people, but something. Like, is it a certain level of income? Is it a certain place that you want to attain to? A certain recognition, a certain achievement, a certain beauty, a certain GPA or SAT or ACT, a certain neighborhood, a certain car, a certain vehicle, a certain promotion, a certain retirement plan. What Solomon says is, it's meaningless. As long as you're trying to always have two handfuls and realize that you really want a third, it doesn't matter what's in your hands. It doesn't matter what you accomplish. It doesn't matter how smart your kids are, how cute your wife is. It doesn't matter how much money you have or what your GPA is or what you made on the SET. As long as your mindset like this, it's a miserable business and you will never win. Something in us whispers this idea that I need some Something else to make me whole. Something to make me acceptable. And I believe that the Bible gives an explanation for what it is that makes us acceptable and whole. But we can break free from this comparison trap. But we, as believers or as non-believers, have to be willing to accept it. Galatians chapter 4. We're going to spend a little bit of time here today. We're going to talk through a couple of issues. Let me just say, we won't be able to get into everything. We're going to kind of do a flyover because we don't have time to go really in-depth to what's here. Paul wrote Galatians in a place when people were really trying to, to figure out what this whole Christianity thing was about and what was required for it. In fact, right before we begin reading in chapter 3, is one of those famous verses in Scripture when Paul says that if you've become a believer, if you've become baptized, if you're somebody that's joined the family of God, then you are a part of family of God. There's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no male, there's no female, there's no slave, there's no free. All are one in Christ. Now the reason Paul had to write this, and this is kind of interesting for what we're talking about, is that there were these group of people in the church of Paul's that Paul would go to a church, preach for a while, and leave. 
And these people would come in behind him and say, you know what Paul preached? It was good, but it wasn't quite enough. And so there were these groups of people that were saying things like, well, you know, if you're not a Jewish person, you can believe in Jesus, but it's really not the same as those of us that are Jewish. And suddenly people started comparing themselves all around, determining who were true Christians and who were just kind of maybe Christians. And one of the criteria was that if you were not a Jew, you had to become a fully a Jew before you could become a Christian. Paul's going to write and says, that's not the case. What I find interesting here is he's going to give the basis for what it means to live a life of acceptance in describing this idea that you don't have to be anything before you come to Christ. It's just a matter of coming to Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and stewards until the time set by his father. Let's explain what's going on there before we get kind of the meat of it. In their culture, if you were an heir, let's say you were an heir to a throne or you just inherited a lot of money or you inherited a lot of land, they didn't let you take control of it right away if you were too young. And so if you were a child and your parent passed away, your dad passed away, which we must realize happened a lot more often then than it does now. I mean, people died at an earlier age. Average life expectancy was somewhere in the late 40s, early 50s. And so they were... People would pass away, children would be 10, 11, 12, and they wouldn't immediately just give them everything. They had stewards, as they called them, tutors, people that would watch over them until they got to be late teens, and they would get part of it, and then until their 20s, they would get all of it. Paul is saying that in that situation, even if you are an heir to something, if you don't actually have it, you're no better than anyone that has it. So it doesn't matter if you've got a note out there that says, In the bank, when you turn 25, you're going to have $2.3 million. If you can't get it till you're 25, at age 12, you don't have anything. And that's what he's saying. Here's why all that matters. It goes on to say this. In the same way, we also, when we were children, now that's before we came to know Christ, were in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent His Son Born of a woman, born under the law. He says, we were that way. Now, he's talking specifically to the Jewish people here, but it has ramifications for all of us. What he's saying is, when we were living before we accepted Christ or knew about Christ or God sent Christ, that we were living in this place where we were constantly trying to get what was ours, but it was a fruitless endeavor was completely shallow. It was chasing after the wind. In fact, he uses this phrase for those of us born under the law. Now, the truth is the law, as we learn in the New Testament, was simply a way for God to show us our own shortcomings. It was a mirror. What does a mirror show you? It shows you yourself, right? Now, they make mirrors these days that can try to make you look better. But generally, a mirror shows you exactly who you are. Right? And what we understand from this is that the law of God, what God set down and said, here is what is right, is a mirror that shows us 
where we fail. At some point in life, we realize that we lack something. At some point in life, we realize that we're not okay and never will be. We realize that we lack something, that's, we have something that's not enough. And we don't know what it is, but intuitively we know it's there. And we know that everybody feels that way because we see people that have the money and the looks. And we see they're still hurting. We discover that people with those things feel the same way we do. The prettiest people in the world are still looking around. The richest people in the world are still not satisfied. Those that have great marriages and new cars and big houses and famous, they still have a need, a lack. And so we begin to think, well, if I just had that, I might be greater. But we know deep down, even that's not going to make us content. And we hear that whisper that says, we need. Born under the law is a reminder to us that we are people who, apart from God, are desperately inadequate. Our problem is that the break in the relationship between us and God by sin created a thread of insecurity in each and every one of us that runs deep in our lives. It leaves our souls with this haunting suspicion that we're not enough. I saw this morning, I haven't actually watched last night's Olympic coverage, it's it's taped, but I saw this morning that a United States guy won the diving championship. Anybody see that? The 10 meter. Anybody ever jumped off a 10 meter platform into water? No thank you. All right? It's 30 feet in the air. Three basketball goals tall. Well, an American last night won. His name was David Budia. And uh, I may not be pronouncing that right, but you just have to get over it if I'm not. Uh, David Padilla, and here's an interesting thing about him. I, I'd read some stuff on him earlier in the games because he went several years ago to Beijing and Dove, and a lot of people consider him this great hope. And uh, he, uh, I watched it two nights ago. He almost didn't make the final round. There were 18 guys that made the final round, and he finished 18th. And then last night he won the gold medal. And so they were interviewing him, and uh, this was on Sports Illustrated this morning on their website. Somebody wrote a story about it. One of the interesting things he said is, that after Beijing, he realized he was chasing a gold medal for all the wrong reasons. He wanted fame and fortune and the popularity and all that comes under it, but he realized that even in chasing after that kind of thing, he was missing out on something much more important. And here's the cool thing about him. I'd read this earlier. He um, actually gave his heart and life to Christ at school in the last four years. And he said what happened on Friday is that he got too nervous. And he told himself he wasn't going to get nervous. And he went home and he laid down and he said, you know what? All this doesn't matter. It's just chasing after the wrong thing if I just go out there to win a gold medal instead of just trusting the Lord. His point being that so many times in life we're just chasing after the wrong thing. Our souls have this suspicion that we're not right. And then we get around a bunch of other people that aren't right. And they start telling us the areas in our lives where we aren't right. Or reminding us by the way they act of the areas we're not right. We're not smart enough. We're not fast enough. We're not popular enough. We're not pretty enough. We're not small enough. We're not big enough. And this confirmed suspicion grows in our heart. And as Paul describes it in Galatians and Romans, 
is we find ourselves in this endless cycle of not knowing what it is that we need. He goes on to say this, and I love this verse. That God sent His Son, born of a woman, under the law for the whole purpose to redeem those under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. What does the word redeem mean? Somebody tell me what redeem means. Bought back. Exchange. To give something, to get something back. What does it mean if you've got coupons in your hand and you redeem the coupons? It means you you use them, right? You, you give them to somebody and they give you something in return. Redeemed here means literally that Christ, that God through Christ bought us back. That He gave up something in order to get something. What He gave up, and this is the thing that ought to blow our minds every time we hear it. What He gave up was His one and only Son. His one that had been with Him since eternity. He gave Him up, born under a woman, born under the law, to live a perfect life and die for our sins. To pay our debt. The exchange He gets out of giving up Christ is us. No longer condemned by the law. This language is very transactional. It's, it's very, um, it's like a judge to a defendant. It's like, a, it's very legal in saying, you have been found not guilty. And the reason that that has to happen is so that the next part can. This adoption. This is because you are sons. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Ancient Hebrews had no process of adoption. No term for it. Paul here takes part of something out of the Hebrew language, I mean, out of the Greek language, and pulls it in to tell these Jewish people about what it means. And when they adopted people in their day, it wasn't babies and children they adopted. They adopted adults. And one of the cool things about it is there was a transactional, very legal thing. And so they would have to sign off, do all that. But they would take this adult child, for instance, a man adopting an adult son, and they would make the transaction, they would make everything happen. But as soon as the transaction was finished, that adopted child was considered forever a part of that family. Immediately. And so Paul uses that same language for us. And here's the reason that this is such an important verse. The reason this is such an important verse is because it reminds us of the only place you will ever be content and the only standard that you can pass. And what we realize, and I mentioned this last week, we're going to talk about it just a little bit more today, is that true contentment only comes from trusting who we are And what we have in Christ. True contentment only comes from trusting who we are and what we have in Christ. Now, I'm going to ask Steve, go back to the verse that we were just on on the slide before that. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, here's the, the thing that's just crazy about that. Is that that word is literally means Daddy. Jesus was the first to ascribe this term to God. Nobody would have ever called Yahweh Daddy. Father, maybe. Lord, exalted one, high and holy. 
when Jesus comes along, He says, God is your Daddy. Now, He doesn't use just any word for Dad there. He uses the word Abba. And then we, the, the writers here just took it and put it straight to, to us to understand. That's an ancient word. And Abba would have been that first word, or second word probably, that a child spoke. What, what's first words for children today, usually? Dada or mama, right? I think I'm one for three so far. You know what I mean, right? I'm, I'm really going to work on number four because I can't let it be three to one, all right? So, Abba, Father. It would have been the first word. This broken relationship is brought back to us through this word. It would have been, um, it would have brought this idea that would have just blown their mind of how we can be intimately involved with the Lord as His son, as His daughter, as His child. Most dads have some sort of special little thing with their kid. There's just a different kind of relationship there. I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, Maddie and I have this kind of interplay that happens sometimes. She'll she'll crawl up in my lap. And we'll sit there and she'll love on me or whatever. And I'll say, guess what, Maddie? And Maddie will go, what? And I always say, this has just become our thing, I'll say, I love you. Well, a few weeks ago, it was just, Dad, you love me? Okay. She'd kind of curl up a little bit more. The last couple of weeks, she started looking at me and go, you don't love me. And it really means, tell me that again. I do love you. You don't love me. I love you always, not always and forever. And it's just this little thing that we have. Now, many of you dads know those kind of things with either your sons or your daughters. Just something that you have. And I'm not talking about your teenagers because they move past that. I'm talking about, you know, when you're little. The word here picture is like us being Maddie crawling up in our dad's lap and being able just to rest in the assurance that he's our dad. It is intimate language of a father to a child. And what he says is this. Any value that we have comes from who we are in Christ. I mean, think about this for a minute. If the creator of the universe considers you like a child and he is the dad, what does it matter what anybody else thinks? Now, we say that in church and go, hey, man, that's good. Well, you didn't say amen. First service did, but you didn't. But, you know, yeah, that's right. Yeah, why does it matter? But the truth is it does to us. Some of you spend lots of time caring what other people think about you. Some of you spent time this morning putting on clothes and doing your hair and thinking, well, I wonder, well, I wonder if this looks good enough for what I'm going to do today. I wonder what people will think about me. I wonder what he'll think or she'll think or they'll think. Some of you, every test you take in school, you're concerned about what the grade will say about you. Some of you, every project you do at work, you're worried about what other people will say about you. Not so much whether you're doing good work, just what everybody else thinks. Some of you have cars right now that you can't afford or shouldn't have, but it's all because you're worried about what people will think about you. 
Some of you are in houses or jobs or locations because you're worried about what other people think about you. And if God is the creator of the universe and yet he allows us to call him Abba, Daddy, Father, it shouldn't matter. Our true contentment comes from knowing who we are, but not just who we are, but what we have. And I love this. It says that what we have in him is that we are an heir of his. We're an heir of the king. Now, that means a couple of things. First of all, it means that we have been broken free from the curse of the law. To be a son of God means that we have been set free from the curse. That we have been moved from an era of before Jesus to after Jesus. And that we are left the age of just trying to get along. And we've moved on to the master's level class of living for the Lord. That the Lord, in dying for us, not only took away the penalty of sin, but now, through His Spirit in us, has opened us up to be able to live for Him without any restriction. We have been set free to live passionately devoted lives for the cause of Christ. All that comparison stuff ought to not care. We shouldn't care about it at all. We have been set free to live passionately for Jesus. You see, contentment comes not only in just being settled with where we are. It comes with a passion to live without limits for the Lord. Verse 7, it says, you are no longer a slave. No longer a slave. A son. And if you're a son, you're an heir. The broken relationship has been restored and we have been set free to live for Him. True contentment comes only from trusting who we are and what we have in Christ. I want to end today by asking you some tough questions. Because it's easy to talk about contentment in a church. It's easy to say I'm content. But let me ask you a few questions. Number one, are you exhausted in life from trying to keep up with other people? Are you broke or on the way there from trying to keep up with other people? Are you allowing what others have to keep you from enjoying what you have? Are you allowing what you don't have to keep you from enjoying what you do have? Do you enjoy your kids or are you driving them crazy because of what everybody else's kids are doing and accomplishing? Is it possible that your spouse feels you're dissatisfied with him or her because of your propensity to make comparisons to other husbands or wives? Are there people in your life that you would secretly enjoy seeing fail? relationally, financially, professionally, because you're envious of what they have. Are you chasing the wind? You see, the truth is, if we take an honest assessment of those questions, we realize that contentment is much harder to attain than we would like to think. But it starts with trusting who we are and what we have in Christ.